I want to talk to you this morning about a word that may be familiar to some of you who have been in church for a bit. Maybe for some of you it's not a very familiar term. I want to talk about the cleft. I want to talk about a cleft. Maybe it's a familiar story to you. Maybe it isn't. Way back in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, we have a familiar story of Moses. It's in Exodus 33 and Exodus 34. Here's what's going on. Moses has gone up on the mountain as the children of Israel are taking laps in the wilderness. They're not lost. They know exactly where they are, and everybody else around them knows exactly where they are, but they are in rebellion and defiance of God and his goodness. And so God sends them on this fool's errand, as it were, to grind themselves down in the dust because of their defiance and their distrust. Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, which is what the Greeks call it. It's Mount Horeb in Hebrew. And he comes down with the Ten Commandments. And he sees that they have not believed that Moses survived that ordeal. And so they built for themselves a golden calf. And they begin to debauch and to depravely worship around this golden calf. And Moses throws down the Ten Commandments, grinds down the golden calf into a powder, mixes it with water, and makes them drink it. Now that's pastoral ministry, baby. That's what I'm talking about. These people who every time they would get disappointed with Moses decided they wanted to try and stone him. And finally, after all that, God says, you know what? I'm done. Here's what I'm going to do, Moses. I'm going to make you an offer. I'm just going to wipe out all of Israel, but you I'm going to preserve. You I'm going to save. I'm going to take you into the promised land. And Moses falls on his face and he intercedes. He stands in the gap. He goes, no, God, don't do this. These are your people, not my people. These are your people. And if you do this, then the nations will be right in what they say about you. God says, that's, that's a good word, Moses. Well done. Here's what I'm going to do instead. I'm going to send you and the people, your people, Moses, I'm going to send you into the land and you will conquer the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Gibbites and the Jebusites and the, all the mosquito bites. You're going to conquer them all. I'll even send my angel before you and will wipe the land clean and you will be prosperous and you will be famous and you will be powerful. But here's the thing. I'm out. I am not going with you. If I spend one more day with those people, I will obliterate them. Moses says, then we're not going. The point is not the place. The point is your presence. And if you don't go, we're not going. And so God, astonishingly, it's the very end of Exodus 33, changes his mind. He says, Moses, I like what you're saying. You're my friend. Well done. What is it that you would like? And Moses says, I want a house on a golf course with a mountain view. No. No, I need a new bass boat with an outboard. No, it's so convicting. I just want to see your glory. That's what Moses says. And God says, oh, that's great, but you can't see my glory. No one can see me as I am or they would die. So I'll tell you what, Moses, once you come up to Mount Sinai, and Moses is like, up there? Yeah, come on back up. Moses hikes up Mount Sinai. And God says, I'm going to place you in a cleft. It's just a little cave, a little cutout. I'm going to place you in that little protective outcropping. And I'm going to place my hand over you. And then I'm going to process my presence in front of you. And I'm going to declare my own excellencies. I'm going to recite my own attributes. But if I move my hand more than that, you will be vaporized. And so he puts Moses in the cleft. And he covers it, and he passes by. And Yahweh, we know now as the second member of the Trinity, it's Jesus himself, pre-incarnate. He passes by, and he says, Yahweh, 
Yahweh, slow to anger and abiding in mercy. I will by no means clear the guilty, but I do not punish and I do not withhold my mercy. And he has his hand over the cleft, protecting Moses from himself. And it got me wondering, what was going on in there while God's passing by? This light show of dazzling righteousness and holiness and glory. What is Moses doing in there? What's going on in the cleft? More on that in a moment. This is why we're in our passage this morning. We are in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I will invite you to turn there because this morning we get to talk about the cleft. How do you know, how do I know that we are in the cleft? How do we know that we are not experiencing God's righteousness rolling forward to consume us? This, I will say, unapologetically, is one of the most central passages in your Bible, in your New Testament. This is the cleft. This gives us the gospel. The gospel is the good news, the great story, the awesome announcement of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. And we get it so viscerally and clearly in this chapter. Now, we are in the book of 1 Thessalonians. We've been calling this Hope in Hard Times. And the reason we've used that series theme is because of this chapter. We'll talk about that here in just a moment. We're in 1 Thessalonians, written probably around A.D. 51. We're on Paul's second missionary journey. Probably got a map for that somewhere just so that you can be oriented of where we are. Paul has left Syrian Antioch on a second missionary journey. He's picked up Timothy in Galatia. He's traveling with Silas. They go all the way to Troas on the northwestern coast of Turkey where they collect Dr. Luke. They go to Philippi. They get beaten up. That's not cool. They're thrown in prison. They come out. They give the gospel. A church is planted in Europe. <laughs> Things happen pretty quick in Acts. They have to leave Philippi, they go through Amphipolis and Apollonia, and they go to Thessalonica, where Paul stays for about three and a half weeks, and he ministers in the synagogue, telling them, Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the Messiah, and they kind of like it. And then he goes, and he's for the Gentiles too, and they try to throw rocks at him. They don't like that idea. And so he goes to Berea, but the Jews from Thessalonica, they travel, they go to Berea, and so they run Paul out of there. Paul has to go all the way down to Athens, where he's all by himself. He leaves Silas in Berea. He sends Timothy back to Thessalonica. Paul goes all the way down to Corinth, where he hooks up and connects with Priscilla and Aquila, and he, he's waiting for a report. He finally sees Timothy coming. Timothy walks in and gives Paul a report and says, hey, Paul, here's how it's going in Thessalonica. And he gives Paul a report, and he asks a couple very fundamental questions. So Paul sits down immediately. Second letter he ever writes, 1 Thessalonians, he addresses some doctrinal issues. Chapter 1, it's all about salvation. How can a person experience and undergo transformation? Chapter 2, all about ministry. What are we supposed to do? What is it that we're trying to convey? What is our method? What is the purpose of the stuff that we do and say and teach? Well, chapter 3, we talked about last week, or two weeks ago. Chapter three is very, very practical things. It's about loving one another. How do we engage with one another as a church? Chapter four, very, very practical. It's about personal holiness, abstinence from sexual immorality. And then he pivots and he talks about this strange sort of unexpected doctrine called the rapture. Now he says, oh, I don't want you to be uninformed because he had never told them about it before and nobody actually knew because it was a mystery in the Old Testament. Why? Because the church was a mystery in the Old Testament. And so it was just sort of 
veiled and shadowy and sort of foggy. Nobody really knew. So Paul explains it to them. This is what the rapture is. Then we get to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Paul's going to go pretty quick here. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. He says, now, concerning the times and the seasons, the chronos and the kairos, concerning the ages and the events, when is all this going to happen? How is it going to happen? Where's the chart, Paul? Where's the prophetic calendar? How do we know what's going on? Is it already happening now? Gee, did we miss it? Paul says, now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. <laughs> Perhaps, but we do. Like, there's a lot that we just don't know, but they knew. How come? Well, two reasons. Number one, he especially keyed in on, for those three and a half weeks that he was in Thessalonica, explaining this to them. He had taught them for three and a half weeks. Secondly, a large portion of this early Thessalonian church were Jewish converts. Remember, he goes into the synagogue, and he reasons with them from Torah. Acts 17 makes it clear. He pulls out their scriptures, the Jewish texts, and he says, listen, it's about Messiah. He had to come and he had to suffer and he had to die and he's risen again and it's Jesus and he will come again in glory. And that great and glorious day, the day of the Lord, Yom Yahweh, Yom Yahweh, Yom Yahweh. Every, every, every Jew knew exactly what the day of the Lord meant. It's in virtually every Old Testament prophetic writing. The four majors and all 12 minors Sort of not so much Jonah, but kind of sort of Jonah. Talk about the day of the Lord. You don't need me to write about this. You know all about this. He hadn't taught them about the rapture. He did teach them about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is always about the beginning in blessing for God's people and judgment on the enemies of God. That's the day of the Lord. And every Old Testament book will talk about it. So he says, concerning the times, the chronos and the seasons, the events, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord starts with blessing and it marches through in judgment. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now, let me say this as delicately as I can. This is without question the inspired word of God. I believe that. I affirm that. I stand on that. And it's also got a human author. Paul. And this is one of those word salad passages where Paul just sort of like forgets his Ritalin or something and he just, he mixes so many metaphors that any English teacher would count off and go, hey, you got to stay consistent. Paul cares not. He's just going to mix every metaphor and figure of speech he possibly can. The day the Lord's going to come like a thief in the night. That doesn't mean Jesus is going to come and steal your stuff. <laughs> You don't have any stuff. Jesus is the king of the cosmos. You are a steward. That's it. Does it mean that Jesus is going to come at night? Yes, for half the planet, because it's a global event. But, but I, don't, I don't know if it's going to be tonight or that night. But yes, it's going to be night for some people. It's going to come like a thief in the night, meaning unexpected. Not a whole lot of announcements going to take place this day of the Lord. And that is completely in keeping with all of the Old Testament prophetic literature that the Apostle Paul, born Saul of Tarsus, would have known. Now, I need to talk just a little bit nerdy, wordy, geeky, greeky about the day of the Lord. It's end time stuff. I would love to pull up some, some charts and to, to roll up. My, but we're not going to do it. I'm just going to be super, super brief. The Old Testament has no problem talking about end times or what we call eschatology, the study of the, of the end times. The Old Testament has no problem doing that. 
we sometimes tend to not want to talk about it in the 21st century because, oh, we don't want to seem like we're dorks. Well, I got news for you. If you believe in the incarnation of Jesus, you're a dork. Embrace it. It's impossible that the second member of the Godhead Trinity and his holiness would become human and live and experience humanity for three plus decades. If you believe that, and you should and you must, then you're already way off kilter according to the world's system of what is normal. The Old Testament talks about the day of the Lord again and again and again. And it's always about God pouring out wrath in judgment on his enemies, those who do not love him, those who do not trust him. Very specifically in the book of Daniel, it's almost shockingly clear what Daniel will write about the coming of the day of the Lord. He says, from the return of exile of the southern tribes of Judah, when they come back from Babylon, when they come back from Babylon, the clock starts ticking. There will be 70 groups of 70 years, so that's 490 years. There will be 69 of them, and then there will be a pause. And the Messiah will be cut off, is what Daniel says. And then there will be a gap, there will be a space, there will be a lag time, and then there will be a 70th seven-year period. Daniel's so clear about it that a lot of modern scholars go, there's no way Daniel could have been written 500 years before Christ. It's just too close, it's too accurate, it's too perfect, it's too precise. To which God goes, man, you know, I can't help myself. I just seem to know everything. What are you going to do? We exist in this lag time between the 69th and the 70th seven of Daniel chapter 9. I know that's nerdy. Maybe don't spend so much time there devotionally, but you could and you should because God wants us to know. In fact, the next verse in Daniel 9 says, I want you to know and understand this, which I'm no scholar, but I think what that means is he wants us to know and understand this and to live as though we believed it. And so we live and exist in this great grand parentheses between the 69 sevens, that's 483 years past from the return of the exiles out of Babylon and Messiah dying in Jerusalem to the very day. And then the parentheses opens. We're in this long, long, long parenthetical period. And yes, it's been 2,000 years and that in no way lessens the veracity and certainty that Jesus is coming again. And it will come. That final parentheses will close like a thief in the night. Here's what I've learned about thieves. I've been burglarized twice. They never text. They're terrible. They never do. They just show up and they take your stuff. One, one dude took a coffee table. Who steals a coffee table? And if he would have just told me, I'd be like, it's a scratch and dent. You can have it. I would have set it outside. No, he broke in. They don't warn you. So there's this idea of imminence. It can happen like that. So he continues on. Verse 3. While people are saying there is peace and security. So can I, just, can I just meddle and mess with you for a little bit? I hear so much, so many people. Oh, things are getting worse. They're so bad. Things have never been so bad. Really? Were you in the Holocaust? Were you in the Black Death of 14th century Europe when the plague was wiping out two-thirds of the population? Let's pump the brake on things have never been so bad. Oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh. And by the way, when it comes, things will be relatively peaceful. Doesn't mean there won't be war. Doesn't mean there won't be storms. Doesn't mean there won't be sin. Doesn't mean that the Dallas Cowboys will win a playoff game. Doesn't mean any of those things. It just means there's going to be relative calm and peace, and people will be saying to each other, you know what? It's not so bad. It's not so bad. Why is Paul saying that? Again, it's a reference back to the exile in Babylon. 
in Jeremiah's ministry, people were walking around Jerusalem going, there's peace and security. Ain't this great? There's peace and security. And Jeremiah was going, no, no, the day of the Lord is coming. It's coming. And they go, nah, nah, nah. We've got Yahweh. He is our strength and our security. And Jeremiah would say, no, he's mad at you. He, he's, he's actually the one who's coming to judge you because you have rebelled and practiced idolatry. And so Paul says the same thing. When it's, there is peace and security, it's a little bit of a nod for his Jewish readers back to the book of Jeremiah that instigated the exile into Babylon. While they are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction, not annihilation, not annihilation. It's not that they will cease to exist. They will be destroyed. This is a horrifying text. Sudden destruction will come upon them, not us. Very important. Paul knows what he's doing. Sudden destruction will come upon them, not us. Paul seems to think that us, we, are in a cleft. That's very important. Sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. It's the strongest syntactical structure you can say. They will by no means absolutely not escape. It'll come like the pregnant pains of, of a pregnant woman. Again, we're mixing metaphors, okay? We, we've talked about a thief in the night, and now we're talking about labor pains, and I, praise God, I don't have a whole lot of direct understanding, experience, and empathy with this. I can just tell you that it, uh, July 2000, my wife was very pregnant with our first son, and it was no surprise. Like, we knew. Like, we knew, okay? We knew, and we knew that there was some imminence. We knew that this was, it was about to, but... But one night, she said, oh, my gosh, the contractions are happening, and they're getting closer. And so I did what all of you dads probably did. I, I, I closed my Bible. <laughs> what? And I remember it like it was, I said, oh, oh, my sweet dove, art thou certain that the blessed event has come upon us? And she said, oh, noble, wise husband. <laughs> Yea, and verily, we must hasten forth and anon. Maybe that's not exactly how it went. <laughs> Maybe, she said, it's time, the contractions are coming, and I probably said something like, what? How could this happen? What do we do now? Ah! And she said, just grab the bag that I've already packed, you giant speckled buffoon. And so... We knew it was coming, and yet it was still kind of a shock and a surprise. It was a traumatic, life-changing kind of a deal. Are you tracking? The day the Lord's going to, like, you know that it's coming. You know that it's coming, and yet it's still going to be a bit of a shock and a bit of a surprise. That's his point here in verse uh, 4. Verse 3, sorry, verse 4. But you... Now he's going to mix more metaphors and more imagery because he's trying to connect with all these different various hearers and readers in Thessalonica. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Or back to the thief metaphor. For you are all children of light. Now he's not talking about some freaky, weird, eastern or mystical cult. He's using imagery to say, listen, there are those people that are only ever influenced by external outward forces, whether it's chemical abuse or sensual experience or cultural norms or whatever. That's darkness. This world system opposes the truth of God. Or there are those people who are actually indwelled 
by the illumining Holy Spirit. They have light and discernment and understanding. Paul will really flesh that out in a little book called 1 Corinthians, which he writes to the church at Corinth, where he's currently sitting when he writes to the Thessalonians. He's in Corinth when he writes this. Later he will write back to the Corinthians going, the spiritual person is indwelled by the Spirit and understands and discerns all things. You're not of the darkness. You're different. You're you're not the same. You've been transformed out of that mindset, out of that heart set. You, verse 5, are children of light, children of the day. We're not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep. Very interesting wordplay in chapter 5. Let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Let's have our thinking and our feeling be accurate, be based on something. Let's root it in who God is, what God is like, what God does. Let us be not asleep. Now in chapter 4, he uses a different word for asleep. And in chapter 4, he means dead. The dead in Christ who have gone to sleep, they will rise first. That's very clearly a word that means dead. This is a different word. This is a different Greek word, and it has the idea of spiritual lethargy. You're just sort of meh when it comes to the things of God, when it comes to the things of the Spirit, when it comes to the things of Jesus, when it comes to the things of the church, when it comes to the things of the Bible, you're just a whole big shovel full of meh. Eh. Let us not be like that, Paul says. Here in verse 6, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Let us align and orient and architect our thinking. Let's design it appropriately. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. Now, I know what you're thinking. Like, no, no, there is this one time. I don't want to hear about it. He's making an image here. Let's not live according to darkness. Let's live according to day. Verse 8, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Having put on, now we're going to switch metaphors again. We've gone from a thief to a pregnant chick. Now we're going to talk about a soldier. Because he's trying to connect in any way he can. I love this. Let us put on, he says, the breastplate of faith and love. Probably has in mind here a Roman soldier. You're familiar with Ephesians chapter 6, putting on the whole armor of God. This is a more concise version. This is an earlier letter than what he writes to the church at Ephesus while he's sitting in prison in Rome. This one, he's in Corinth. Let's put on the breastplate. What does the breastplate do? Well, it goes from your neck to your navel, and it covers all of your vital organs. And the breastplate is of faith and love. And I love that. Faith what we understand about who God is, what he's done, what we agree with, I think that's true, and what we trust, that's faith. Understanding, agreeing, and trusting. That is our vertical relationship to God. That is the content of our confession. That covers our vitals, keeps us safe from harm. What we believe makes us who we are. And that same breastplate is of love. Faith in God, what he says, and love are moving our lives out toward others. Most Christians do not properly perceive that loving one another is actually defense against the dark arts. Did you hear that? It's the breastplate of love. How am I defended against temptation, against falling into spiritual ick and to sin? Loving you. In other words, loving one another is actually spiritual warfare. Oh, you can try to name and claim this, that, it. good luck, fine, awesome. Try baking somebody a casserole. 
just gorilla wash their car without telling them. That's spiritual warfare. That is the breastplate of faith and love. And, he goes on, this is so good, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So there's, there's Paul's great grand grid, faith, hope, and love, his matrix for how he evaluates a church. Faith, hope, and love. What is our helmet? What guards our thinking and our feeling? The hope, not the wish. Hope, biblically, is a confident expectation of something good in the future. Hope in the future. I know that I am saved. And so that guards my perceiving. It guards my interaction with the reality in which I exist. That is my helmet. It's the hope of salvation. Four, here's the cleft. Can I just tell you what our big idea is at long last? Jesus is the cleft in the rock. Jesus is the cleft in the rock. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 and 10. It's one of those central, central bedrock verses. Memorize it, know it, write it on a sticky note, put it on your steering column. When you have a wreck, that thing will blow and tattoo right on your face. Write it on your bathroom mirror and dry erase marker. I don't care what you do. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 and 10. This is the cleft in the rock, and I cannot make a big enough deal about it, but I shall now try. For God has not destined us for wrath. And this word wrath, or gay, is a technical term that has to do with God's judgment. You, Christian, he's writing to the church at Thessalonica, and then by extension to us, you were not destined for tribulation, for God's judgment. That is not God's destining for you. This is one of the central verses that we would say, mm, God's going to remove and rescue his church before judgment is poured out in tribulation period. You have not been destined for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the cleft in the rock. What protects us and provides for us from the holiness and the righteousness of God? Because I, I don't know if you've noticed, you're not particularly holy or nor righteous. And if you're not sure about that, ask a spouse, ask a neighbor, ask a kid, ask a parent. They'll tell you. They probably have notes. God determines and declares that you are righteous, but functionally, you're not actually. This is why God tells Moses, you can't see me. I would vaporize you. How do you take shelter from the holiness of God? In the holiness of God. Jesus is the cleft in the rock. You've not been destined for wrath. Who was? Well, there's three great global judgments that happen in your Bible. The first is with water. Genesis chapter 6, God floods the whole earth. The third global judgment happens in the tribulation period, Revelation 6 through 19, and it is by fire. The second global judgment happened 2,000 years ago, and it is by wood and nail and thorn. The entire unmitigated wrath of God is poured out on Christ so that all who are subsequently found in him will never taste a drop of God's wrath. Now that's the gospel. The people in Thessalonica were beginning to wonder, Paul, this is suffering. This is hard. We're being persecuted. We're losing loved ones. Is, is this the day of the Lord? Are we experiencing God's wrath? Paul goes, no, 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 no. Let me help. You, Christian, you will never experience God's wrath, ever, ever, in any capacity whatsoever. You might be receiving gentle, loving chastisement from God. You might just be stupid 
and made bad decisions and bad things happened because of your bad choices and all your options are now hard. You will never experience God's wrath because Christ drank that cup to the dregs. That's why we take communion together. You were not destined for wrath. And then here's the gospel. It's unbelievable unless it's got to be believed. You were destined for salvation through, he's the agency of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 10, who died for, circle that little English preposition, for, because it means on our behalf and it means in our place. It is both. This is the wonderful gospel doctrine of substitutionary atonement. God died in our place. Paul will flesh this out more fully in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He died for us so that, and then this is, this is, this is where I'm going to upset a whole lot of you from your different church backgrounds. That's okay. You can email me at mike at bethelbible.com. It'll be fine. So that whether we are awake or asleep, we'll still live with them. I don't know when it's going to happen, but it's going to happen. Whether we're awake or we're asleep does not mean if we're alive or we're dead. Although that's great news. Paul's saying, shockingly, this is the shocking scandal of the gospel. Whether you are alert and spiritually attentive and crushing it for Jesus. Or maybe you're in a season of gloom and glum and you just can't figure out how to put your pants on in the morning. You're just in a struggle bus and everything is gray. (laughs) But the gospel says, it's all right. You're going to live with him forever. Because you've been destined for salvation through our Lord Jesus who died in your behalf and in your place. Now, does that give you the license to just live gray and dead all you want? No, there's no greater jolt in the cosmos. It's the most priceless therapy there is. I am loved. I will live like it's true. And when I feel glum, because I don't know about you, most mornings, super transparency, I don't really feel like waking up and crushing it for Jesus. I just Sometimes I'm just like, oh, I could eat a box of Girl Scout cookies right now, or three, or some hagen and maybe a pickle. I don't know. Then I remember what Paul says, whether we're killing it and spiritually alert or we're just in a malaise, we're going to be with Jesus forever. He's the point. Jesus is the cleft in the rock. It's not about a program or a policy or a procedure. It's about a person and his presence, and we will be with him forever, never having to experience any of his wrath because Jesus took it all. Did you hear the song? Jesus paid it all. Therefore, he says, Encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. We don't have to wonder what we're going through if this is God's wrath poured out on us. No, it's a broken world, or it's my own flesh, or it's my enemy. It ain't God. Oh, that day's coming. Like a pregnant thief in the night who's wearing a, I don't know, there's a lot of metaphors here, okay? But it's coming. Don't be shocked. So, what, so, 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 so then Paul, they say, so what do we, what do, we do while we're waiting what, what do we do? Remember when I said, I wonder what Moses doing in the cleft? When Moses is put up in the rock and God covers him with his hand and he passes by, what's Moses doing? I'll tell you what he's doing. He's worshiping. He's, he's going, 
I could only, I got that little bit between the fingers. That's all I could see. But he's worshiping. The problem is Moses was all alone. And there were people down in the valley murmuring, wanting to throw rocks at him. And so Paul's going to say to us in this end of this chapter, you're in the cleft. Worship. And here's how life in the cleft works. Now, this is a crazy closing paragraph, all right? The end of chapter 5, there are 19 imperatives. Some of you are like, I'm done with the doctrine. Just tell me what to do. All right, buck up there, Skippy. We're about to hit you with some imperatives. In the book of Romans, you get 11 chapters of doctrine. And finally, in chapter 12, you get an imperative. Not here, Chachi. He's going to unload the chamber. 19 imperatives. So rapid fire. Now, listen, I'm not going to Bible whip you. There are a lot of pastors in the history of the church for the last 2,000 years. It'll take 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to the end, and they'll make one sermon out of each of the 19 imperatives. But I like having a church. So I'm not going to do that to you. I want you to come back. So we're going to do these very, very quickly. This is life in the cleft. This is how life in the cleft is supposed to work. Even in hard times, here is hope. Jesus is the cleft in the rock. This is how we engage and interact in the cleft together. And by the way, never forget that we're in the cleft. We're not just slugging it out until maybe Jesus pops smoke. No, 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 no. We're in the cleft. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. This church is like three months old max. And already people are going like, hey, I don't think the guy who's in charge knows what he's doing. Can that happen in a church? (laughs) Just take it on faith. It can. And I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying it happens. Paul's saying, listen, just like what he says in the writer of Hebrews says, and what Peter says in chapter 5, and what he says in 1 Timothy 3, and in Titus 1, and in Acts 20. Let's do this as a partnership. Be, Be prayerful. Support the people who are in charge and who are leading your church. Be at peace amongst yourselves. Man, this matters. We are to be involved in one another's lives congregationally because we're in the cleft together. And lest we forget, there's a hand covering us over and the presence of God passes by. That sets the thermostat inside the cleft, by the way. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, those who are spiritually lethargic, who are just sort of sitting on their hands, Encourage the faint-hearted. Can you tell the difference between the idle and the faint-hearted? Not always. It's hard to tell. And so you know what we do? We give the gospel. We love and we lead and we guide and we guard. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. Patient. Bear up under their load. What's the difference between someone who is idle and weak and faint-hearted? Oh, God knows. I, I don't. I just call it Monday morning. I, got, I, 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 I just need encouragement. I need the gospel. Be patient with them all. Verse 15. See that no one repays evil for evil. We don't get angry, nor do we get even. We are not a quid pro quo cleft kind of folk. You wound me, you wrong me. I love you. I wound you, I wrong you. You love me. Because that's the picture of the gospel. I I keep defaming the name of my Lord and my Savior, and he loves me. Isn't that beautiful? That's what we're after. No one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. What does that sound like, love? 
having the other person's highest possible good, wanting your good volitionally above my own. People in the church, but then he even says to everybody, it's like, you're children of light, not of darkness. Do good in every possible way. Verse 16, rejoice always. Shortest Greek verse in your Bible. There you go. Rejoice always. Does that mean you have to walk around awkwardly with a tambourine and doing the Pollyanna high hands thing? Stop it, hippie. No, no. It's a mindset. It's a heart set. It's a gospel set because of what is true. I am rejoicing. Not in some fake plastic way. No, but I am everlasting. I am eternal. I am loved. I'm liked. I'm accepted. I'm his favorite. He has my picture on his fridge. Rejoice. Always. In other words, preach a little sermon to your soul. You need it. There's a lot of gravity to our depravity. Pray without ceasing. And in King James. No, no. Be in dialogue. Pray without ceasing does not mean you have to have your hands folded and your head bowed and your eyes closed because, oh my gosh, you should drive your car alertly. But always with the persistent awareness of his presence. My wife has wisely placed on our refrigerator, have you prayed about it as much as you have talked about it? No! Like ever. That might surprise you. I have a kind of a words thing that I talk a lot. No, but to be in constant, someone of you laughed, stop that. To be in constant awareness of his presence and to just have dialogue. And it doesn't have to be proper grammar. Just, God, I'm dying in a pile. That's okay, that's prayer. Or, oh God, this is so beautiful. Oh God, thank you for my family. Thank you for creation. Thank you for church. It's just, God's so good. And sometimes you're also just full on transparent. This hurts. And I, can't, I don't think I can do it anymore. Pray without ceasing at all times. Verse 18, central verse, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Wow, that couldn't be stronger, more powerful, more precise. Give thanks in all circumstances. More on that here in just a moment. Do not quench the spirit. Some of you might have a translation that says, do not put out the spirit's fire. Uh, sometimes it gets a little bit off-putting to some of us in the Protestant world. The, the Spirit is trying to bring light into you. Don't dampen it. Don't put it out. Don't put it off. In other words, the Spirit is actively doing something in you. Whether or not you feel it or are aware of it, the Spirit is at work in you. That's Romans 8. It's the mark of being a Christian. You are eternally indwelled by the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. That does not mean that you should not listen to people who tell you the specific dates of Christ. No, no, no. Prophecies has to do with the word of the Lord. Don't rebuke and refuse to hear the proclaimed word of God's truth. That's what Paul's talking about here. But test everything. Hold fast what is good. Don't just take it as a bill of goods. Hear what you're hearing. Weigh it, measure it out. Weigh it. Is this really truth? Abstain, he says. Verse 22, from every form of evil. Let's see, what does that leave out? Hmm. Because I hear people in the 21st century, good-meaning Christians, yeah, but I can do this and 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 this because there's grace for that. Well, no. Paul says, abstain from every form of evil. And there's grace for when you fail. And this beautiful, incredible benediction, one of my favorites in all of the Bible, verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself, this is so good. Remember, Paul's writing to a largely Jewish readership. This is the God of shalom. 
Shalom is, uh, is wholeness. It is wellness. It is the way things are supposed to be-ness. It is that condition when the righteousness of God fully finishes its job. That's shalom. Now, he says, may the God of shalom himself sanctify you and righteify you. That's the word. May he enrightify you completely, not just a little bit of you, not just that part that you want to hold on. No, no. May he enrightify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body, your entire person, be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because if you hadn't heard yet, he's coming back, Paul says. The second parentheses will be closed. So we've already heard mention of the spirit. Don't quench him. May the God of shalom himself enrightify you completely for the coming of the Lord Jesus. We have this wonderful triune symmetry in this blessing. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. This is good news. It's not debatable. It's not in question. It is in the mind of God finished. It is what we would call future history. It is finished. He's done it. Brothers, pray for us. I love that Paul says this. He's sitting in Corinth and he needs the people in Thessalonica, these people who have been Christians for less than a few months. Pray for us. As one of my heroes in the faith, Fleming Rutledge, likes to say, there is an alchemy between the people in the pew and the pastor in the pulpit. We must pray for and together. The the power of the gospel literally rides on the wings of the prayers of the people. So Paul says, brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I'm going to ask some of our elders to come up here and demonstrate the holy kiss. Would you? No, 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 not, not really. This is a cultural thing. It's just to show warmth and love in some sort of visceral, sincere means of communication and connection. This is how they did it then. This is how they still do it in most other, like, Latin and European contexts. Here, we, we awkwardly fist bump. Okay, fine, whatever it is, whatever you got to do. Awkward Baptist side hug. Awesome. Whatever you got to do. Convey affection and attention one to another. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. It's very serious. He wants the entire church, not a select few, not the elite. He wants the entire church to know these words. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. There's the gospel. That's the bookend. Grace and peace to you, he starts off the letter. At the end, grace, because it's all about what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. That's the gospel. How do you know, Christian, How can you know, non-Christian, that you will not receive the wrath of God? Jesus is the cleft in the rock. So let me just give you three very quick summary implications that we can all take away from this. There are about a million I could give, but let me just give some very, very quick ones. None of these, I don't think, are, um, are new. Because every time we teach through Scripture, we keep seeing the same sort of meta-narrative themes. The first one goes like this. We are from the future. Paul and Peter will say this over and over and over again. We are from the future. Our Bibles are declaring in a whole lot of ways that we are God's people in the present, but representatives of his future kingdom because of what Christ did in the past. And I don't want you to ever forget this imagery, that at his first advent, which took about 30-something years, Christ grabbed the border and the boundary of the future coming kingdom, and he dragged it back and he pinned it at the cross. Until such time as second advent, which will take about seven years and will culminate in a thousand-year reign on earth. We are from that coming kingdom in this parenthesis, in this gap. We live in that here and now. 
But we're from the future, not from the past. We're from the future in the present because of what God did in Christ in the past. So the church has to be a demonstration of that future now. We are what Titus will say, what Peter will say. We are a peculiar people. It does not mean we're weird. That is Old Testament priestly language for the Levites. We are a royal priesthood, Peter will say. We are a people of Christ's own, Paul will say to Titus, that he has called us to himself to be from the future, to represent his coming kingdom in the present. We have to think that way. We have faith, hope, and love, as though it's all true because it is. And so that leads us to our second point, and it goes like this. The meantime matters. This is not so much a problem as it used to be in the late 20th century. A great number of evangelical Christians would say, ah, it doesn't really matter how we live, it's all going to burn. It doesn't matter what we do in the world, it's all going to burn. Wrong. That's not biblical. The meantime matters. Can I just, can I get right up in some of your kitchens? Nobody's greener than God. God loves the environment. And I don't care if that makes you mad. Read Genesis. Read Revelation and everything in between. The meantime matters, how we live, how we steward, how we garden, how we take the resources that have been given to us by God and rearrange them for the blessing of the people around us God cares about. We wait well like we actually believe that this is true, like Moses. We just want to see his glory, but in the meantime, we wait well. What we do in this life matters. It determines our future role in the kingdom as ambassadors now. Third point goes like this. Gratitude is our attitude. <laughs> well, it must be. It's so much easier to kvetch and to complain. But for the Christian, because of the gospel, our attitude must be that of gratitude. Now, Paul will flesh this out a whole lot more in Philippians chapter 4. But what he says, it's a technical expression in verse 18, give gratitude in all things. What Paul is saying here in 1 Thessalonians 5.18 and in Philippians 4, when you pray without ceasing, you thank God for every conceivable outcome. That's what he means when he says, give thanks in all things. It's in the midst of and for all things. When a situation occurs and the phone call comes and you're not sure how this is going to turn out, you pray and I thank you, God. If this goes like this, then you will be good and you will get the glory and you love me. And God, if it goes like this, you are good and I will give you the glory because you love me for always and ever. And if it goes like this, then you are good and you will get the glory because you love me for always and forever. And this is not wrath. Or if it goes in some way I can't even imagine you are good and you love me and you get the glory and I will be with you for all eternity so that no matter what happens, the person of God is fully equipped to deal with life. Because by the way, that's what this world needs. People who are in Christ reflecting the image of the God that made them. Our gratitude is our attitude. Jesus is the cleft in the rock. Moses was told by God, this pre-incarnate Christ, that Moses could not see his face. Anyone that saw him as he was, would die. Ah, but then the gospel comes along and it says that the Son of God came to earth, was seen by thousands, and as many as believed in what he said and what he did and how he lived, they're invited to see his face and to live with him forever. And so we are invited to take refuge from God in God. This is very good news. This is the gospel. Jesus is our cleft in the rock. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this word. 
I do pray, God, if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't know you, that is outside the cleft, that you would delay your return to provide time for those people to hear the truth, to understand it, to agree with it, to trust in it, and to be in the cleft, that they would believe, that they would be persuaded that this gospel is true. For the rest of us, Father, who are going through struggle and perhaps spiritual lethargy or malaise, would you encourage us with this bright and glorious truth that we will live with Jesus forever? Would you energize us to live attentively in the meantime? And Father, for those who have been an encouragement and an edifying force for the rest of the church, would you continue to do more and more and more in their lives so that your church would flourish? We pray all these things, Father, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.